Will you pray with me, please? God, we give you thanks for your word. May it ring true in our hearts. May it be more true even than what we think and more true than what we see in our world. May we trust in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, it's the Sunday before Thanksgiving, so that means it's about a month before Christmas. Black Friday is this week and Cyber Monday is right around the corner. And our sermon is titled, What Are You Consuming? A sermon on consumerism may not be what you were hoping for today. Uh, you may be wondering, is, is this sermon going to ruin my Thanksgiving dinner? Are you going to make me feel guilty every time I click on Amazon in the next couple of weeks? And really, do you have to be a killjoy when we are already facing the holidays with all these pandemic limitations? Actually, I hope it's quite the reverse because today we're finishing up our sermon series on identity in Christ. And throughout this sermon series, our goal has been to better understand how our identity in Christ is the foundation from which we build our lives and how we can be more secure to, as we seek to live into that identity. Because honest, Jesus isn't a killjoy. Far from it. Jesus said he came so that we could have real joy, lasting joy. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life to the full. It is our identity in Christ that gives us the fullest, most secure source of joy. A source of joy that is not dependent on our paycheck, on our Amazon delivery arriving in time, or on our political party winning the election. As we prepare for Christmas, uh, during the next four weeks of Advent, we're going to focus on joy. But before we turn to fully focus on Jesus as our source of joy, we're going to take one more look at a threat to our identity in Christ. And that is our insatiable desire to accumulate possessions, also known as consumerism. I love the way that Ken Costa defines consumerism. He says that consumerism focuses on loving things and using people. Consumerism may give us a moment of happiness, but it will never give us true satisfaction. True satisfaction is found when we base our identity in Christ rather than in our possessions. And when we receive eternal life, and Costa goes on to say eternal life, focuses on loving people and using things. God's Word has a lot to share with us about uh, that topic, and today we're going to take a look at Jesus' words to a man in the crowd that we can find in Luke chapter 12. So I invite you to take a look at that in your Bible as we turn to Luke 12, and let me set the stage for us as we turn to this scripture reading. The chapter starts with Jesus teaching a large crowd. You can look at verse one. It says the crowd is so large that they were trampling one another. Now, clearly this is pre-COVID. Uh, and Jesus, with many thousands pressing in to hear him teach, he gets into some pretty deep stuff. Look at what he teaches right before the portion of scripture that Elizabeth Marcello shared with us this morning. You can find in verses eight and nine that Jesus talks about being acknowledged or disowned before the angels of God. 
In verses 10, he talks about blaspheming against the Holy Spirit and not being forgiven. And then in verses 11 and 12, he offers assurance that if you are put on trial by the authorities, the Holy Spirit will teach you what you should say. Now, all this is really heavy duty stuff. It's hardcore spirituality for people who are serious about discipleship. It's stuff for rugged disciples. And then you look at the very next verse. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now this guy is obviously not really listening to what Jesus is saying. Maybe this kind of conversation disconnect has happened to you before. Imagine if you were having a conversation in which you finally find the courage to talk about your dreams for the future. And the person to whom you are talking listens for a while and then says, you know, talking about the future, could you help me on Saturday? I have a couch that I just bought and I need to move the old one out of my apartment. Or imagine that you are with a group of friends and you're having this, this deep conversation about what does it mean to be a Christian in our current world that's so divided with all the challenges that we're facing. And then there's a brief pause and someone who has not yet contributed to the conversation says, do you know if the pizza shop is open? I'm hungry. This kind of conversation disconnect is what happens to Jesus. A man in the crowd isn't tracking with Jesus because he's on his own track. His mind seems to be a million miles away. And that isn't hard for us to imagine, is it? We all have probably been guilty of focusing on our own stuff. Maybe you're doing that right now. Uh, this man doesn't seem to be listening to Jesus because what he cares about is getting his the inheritance that he believes is rightfully his. And he notices this man Jesus has a lot of influence. Maybe I can get him to help me get this inheritance. The man, when he sees Jesus, he only sees what he wants to see. He wants to see someone who will help him get his inheritance. And so, that is what he sees, and that is all he sees. There's a Scottish pastor way back in the 19th century named Alexander McLaren. He said that our sense of want largely shapes our conception of Christ. Now, I think that's a very insightful statement. What we think about Christ is primarily shaped by what we want from Christ. If we want healing, we see Jesus as a healer. If we want provision, we see Jesus as a provider. If we want forgiveness, we see Jesus as a savior. So today I ask you, what do you most want from Jesus? Now, as you think about that, don't think small because we rarely want too much from Jesus. This man's problem was not that he wanted too much from Jesus. He wanted what he thought would make him happy from his own limited, individualistic, self-centered perspective. And he didn't realize that Jesus had so much more to give him. The only son of the living God of the universe is standing before him and all he could see was a cheap genie who could grant him a wish that he thought would make him happy. This man wanted too little. This man only wanted an inheritance that would pass away. And Jesus wanted to give him eternal life. And most of us are like this man, at least sometimes. C.S. Lewis made this point. He wrote, 
Our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. See, the goal is not to make us feel guilty about what we eat or what we have or what we buy. It is to help us see that the true and lasting joy that Jesus can offer to us and to not be distracted by the temporary and thus miss the eternal. So Jesus refuses to do what the man asks, and he even seems a little annoyed by the request. Look at how Jesus responds to the man. He says, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbitrator between you? See, Jesus draws a line. He didn't come to solve family disputes. This is a legal battle between brothers and Jesus isn't going to step in and serve as an attorney or a judge. He isn't going to be sidetracked by this man's request. Instead, what he does is he uses the man's request as an opportunity, an opportunity to continue his teaching, to explain to the crowd and then to us why this man is concerned about the wrong thing. Jesus wants us to see that this man is focused on the financial inheritance and what he wants from his earthly father. And instead of focusing on the spiritual inheritance that Jesus is offering to him from his heavenly father. Now to put it mildly, that is a very poor choice. The man chooses the temporary instead of the eternal. He chooses the valuable instead of the invaluable. And so Jesus says to the man and to us, watch out. See that in verse 15? The Greek word there for watch out is horao. It means to, to stare at, to see, to discern clearly. It means to see with your eyes, but it also means to perceive with your mind. Uh, it doesn't just mean to keep a sharp eye out. It means pay attention so that you see and you understand what's really happening, the way things really are, not just the way things seem to be. Jesus says, watch out, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear Jesus say, watch out, I think I'd better pay attention. So that made me wonder, where else does Jesus say, watch out? What else should we watch out for? I did a search of Jesus's words recorded in the four gospels using the NIV translation, and I was fascinated by the results. Most of the time when Jesus said, watch out, he said we should watch out that we are not deceived. There are people, Jesus said, who are around us, and he warned us that we should watch out for them because they might deceive us. Watch out for the teachers of the law. Watch out for false prophets. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees. Watch out for anyone who will deceive you. Most of the time when Jesus said, watch out, it was for these external threats of deception. 
And there is one, watch out, that is not external, it's internal. Watch out for an inclination that's inside of you. And it's interesting to me what that is. Because it isn't sexual temptation, it isn't lying. Jesus doesn't say, watch out that you don't misbehave. <laughs> Jesus doesn't say, watch out, you need to do enough for me. You'd better work hard or you're gonna be in trouble. The internal threat that of deception is one that's named in this passage that we're looking at today. Jesus says, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Watch out that you don't believe the lie, that you aren't deceived into thinking that your life consists in the abundance of possessions. Now, greed is obviously something Jesus is really concerned about. And if you're familiar with the seven deadly sins, you may know that greed makes that list. Way back in the 300s, the seven deadly sins were identified as the basic sins, the sins that lead to other sins. For example, pride is usually listed first in that list of seven deadly sins because it's seen often as the fundamental sin. The sin of lying may be a result of the sin of pride. The seven deadly sins are pride, greed, lust, envy, gluttony, wrath, and sloth. Now, as we look at this list, I imagine that some of these are ones that don't bother us too much. We might even joke about sins like gluttony, especially the week of Thanksgiving. And when you see sloth on the list, that might make you think of that funny scene at the DMV in Zootopia. And there are other sins on the list which might be a little uncomfortable for us to talk about, sins like wrath or lust, yet many of us would admit that we struggle with or have experienced these sins at some time in our life. And then there's greed. Now, I'm not gonna ask you to do this, but if I asked who struggles with greed, I doubt that there would be very many people who would be like, me, I struggle with greed. Most of us don't think of ourselves as greedy, and so we aren't terribly worried that we're gonna to succumb to the ill effects of greed. It's a danger that we tend not to pay very much attention to. There are dangers that we are inclined to pay attention to. Maybe like me, you like to use the trails at Ryder Park. There's a lot of really great trails up there and some beautiful overlooks when you go up there and walk those trails. But in the middle of summer, especially if it is very dry, there is a danger that you should pay attention to at Ryder Park. And many people talk about it. You may know what it is, rattlesnakes. When you go to Ryder Park in the summer, it's wise to watch out where you're walking. And if I were walking along a trail and came upon a fellow hiker who said to me, hey, you know, when you go around that corner up there, watch out because as we were coming your way, we saw a rattlesnake off the side of the trail. You had better believe that when I went around the corner up there, I would be watching out. But let's be honest. When Jesus says, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, we generally don't get very alarmed. We think, I can handle that danger. I won't be bitten by greed. That venom won't poison me. Most of us don't think of ourselves as susceptible to greed. And Jesus recognizes that this man and most of us 
don't realize how dangerous this is and how vulnerable we are to believe that our life consists in the abundance of our possessions. We hear stories of very wealthy people who are addicted to drugs, lonely, unhappy, have a dysfunctional family, people who spend money wildly without any satisfaction on their lavish homes, expensive cars, designer clothing, and other possessions. But few of us think that we would be less happy if we had more money. Do you? Do you think that if you had more money, do you think that you would be more satisfied with your life or less satisfied? Jesus says to the man, life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. In other words, we are not defined by what we have. Your identity is not defined by your bank account or your possessions. Your security is not in your 401k. Jesus said that life consists in knowing the one and only true God and Jesus Christ whom God has sent. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? I think most people don't. Going back to Alexander McLaren, the Scottish pastor, he said, is there any saying of Jesus Christ's more revolutionary or less believed by his professed followers than this? Do you believe that life consists in the abundance of your possessions or in knowing the only true God and in Jesus Christ whom he sent? Could you use your tax return or your financial statements as evidence that you do indeed believe that? Jesus invites you to place your identity in God rather than in your possessions so that you will have eternal life. And when your identity and security is in God, it dethrones possessions as the God of your life and it replaces the twin threats of worry and desire with the blessing of satisfaction. The problem with basing our identity on the abundance of possessions is that we're constantly battling worry or desire because possessions have limits. Eventually, possessions run out or wear out, and so they don't meet our heart's deepest desires. When we base our identity on our possessions, we set ourselves up to either worry that we don't have enough or desire to have more. John D. Rockefeller was one of the wealthiest men in American history. When he died in 1937, his obituary stated that he made $1.5 billion in his lifetime. That figure is actual dollars during his lifetime and is not adjusted to today's dollars. If you would adjust Rockefeller's worth to today's dollars, his fortune would be more than triple that of Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon and the world's richest man in 2019. When Rockefeller, a man who had possessions greater than most of us can even imagine, was asked, how much money is enough money? His famous response was, just a little bit more. Rockefeller wasn't satisfied with what he had. Jesus wants you to be satisfied, more than satisfied. 
Jesus wants you to be filled with joy. Jesus wants to reframe your identity and set you free from being enslaved by greed and defined by your possessions. Jesus invites us to base our identity in him, an identity that is secure even if our barns burn down or the stock market crashes, an identity that will not only provide satisfaction in this life, but will offer eternal life. Because life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Amen.